Previously on Searching for Ghosts. I spent an entire year of nothing but that case. Mm. I had a super boss at that time, one from McCoy, and uh, he, he took me off everything and told me just to concentrate on that case. Right. And, uh, and I traveled, I traveled several different places. Uh, and I had calls from all over, all over the United States. And, uh, of course, we, we questioned a lot of people. No, uh, quote, photographic evidence from police of that scene, you know, because they aren't brought to the scene until the next day. And I don't even know if they even came in, honestly. I think that, you know, right off the bat, the police thought she ran away. But there was supposed to be a payphone in there. Yeah, and I don't know why no one ever... Whoever she called at that church, if she'd left, is who she'd left with. They say that hindsight is 2020, and 2017 is tempting to look back at how this case was handled, or mishandled according to many, and start hurling rocks. But context is everything. I try to put myself in law enforcement's shoes in 1996. There were no email logs to check, no cell phone towers to triangulate. Hell, Cindy didn't even have a working phone at the house. This leaves eyewitness accounts as the crux of the evidence available in this case. And while many cases have been solved because of eyewitness testimony, it is the least favorite means of law enforcement and prosecutors to bring about justice. And in listening to this podcast, you can see why. From the way the house was found to the legion of possible motives, every theory from witnesses spawns new questions, not answers. Many people I've talked to have stated that police dropped the ball, and with the case remaining unsolved for almost 21 years, that statement gets very little criticism. If law enforcement didn't mess this thing up, it would have been solved long ago, right? In the 10-year period between 2001 and 2011, Milan had a total of five homicides. From 1976 to 1995, it had 12. Milan, Tennessee is a far cry from the ground zero of violent crime. I don't think the television show The First 48 is going to set up camp there anytime soon. Unfortunately, The way to get better at solving abductions and homicides is to have a lot of practice. So on one hand, the residents of Milan can be thankful that they live in a relatively safe area. On the other, when something like the disappearance of Casey McDaniel happens, the local police can easily find themselves in uncharted territory. This episode is going to try to piece together the timeline of those early days after Casey's disappearance. It's time to look at the information that we have on this case and see how it was handled by law enforcement. The good, the bad, and the ugly. I'm Brandon Barnett, and this is Searching for Ghosts. It is apparent from the news articles in those early days of Casey's disappearance that there was much confusion about how to classify this case. Remember this from last episode? The article included a picture of Casey with a caption asking if she was a runaway or a kidnap victim. So one month after she went missing, Casey's disappearance was being looked at as this hybrid of a runaway and an abduction. That maybe she was lured away by someone she knew, or willingly left with someone initially, and that it turned into an abduction. An August 21, 1996 article of the Jackson Sun had a subtitle that read, quote, Authorities are beginning to suspect the Milan teenager was kidnapped, 
unquote. The article goes on to say that the department was seeking assistance from the TBI and the television show America's Most Wanted, as well as contacting local media outlets to circulate Casey's photo and description. The article also states that, quote, After searching the McDaniel home and finding none of Casey's personal belongings missing, investigators started treating the case as an abduction. They searched the residence for fingerprints Tuesday, unquote. This was four days into the investigation. This is what received so much criticism from the people that I talked to about this case. Days would you say it was before the Milan cops come to see me's house? We were there first. Four. It was more. four or five days. I, I mean, and I, and we were using the hairbrush and stuff, and I don't even think that the house was never taped off as a crime scene. It was several days before I think they even come. And Cindy said that they said, because I don't know if it was Pam or Dawn got the, the picture of Casa, the missing bulletin, and Cindy said that they said we was messing with the investigation. So that's just out of Cindy's mouth to me. Right. And I couldn't figure that one out. One month later, in the September 15, 1996 edition of the Jackson Sun, Cindy's boyfriend Steve was quoted with a similar complaint. Quote, Police did not come to the house until a week after Casey disappeared, Steve says. Then the police wanted to know why the scene wasn't just the way it was a week earlier, why stuff had been moved. I asked where they had been when they were needed, unquote. While it wasn't a week later, his point is noted. But it should also be noted that Casey wasn't reported missing until around 2 p.m. on Saturday, August 17th, some 12 hours later after Cindy came home and found the house with the door open. So the possible crime scene theoretically could have been tainted in that 12-hour period. But 12 hours is still much better than three and a half to four days. It appears that the time lag in treating the house as a crime scene goes back to initially looking at the case as a runaway situation. The same article has Cindy being critical of law enforcement. Quote, Cindy too is bitter about the police not helping any faster. She believes the wait to get the TBI and the FBI involved lost valuable time. Unquote. According to reports in the media, it was announced four days in that the TBI had been contacted and the FBI on day five. Ten days after Casey was reported missing, the composite sketch mentioned in episode two was released to the media. The FBI pulled out of the investigation because there was no evidence that she had been transported across state lines. Casey's story was aired on America's Most Wanted on August 31st, just two weeks after she was officially reported missing. That's pretty impressive in my opinion to get this on the national radar. After the America's Most Wanted airing, a tip of a sighting came in reporting that Casey was seen hitchhiking with an older man in Haytai, Missouri. Haytai is just across the Mississippi River from Dyersburg, Tennessee, where Casey had reportedly been seen at a local Walmart. There are no reports that the FBI re-entered the case after these sightings, which should have met the crossing state lines burden if the tips were deemed credible. In the next couple of months, investigators released to the media that they had questioned a Carroll County team and were looking into a rape suspect in Nashville that matched the composite sketch. Both of these leads were fruitless. In the September 15, 1996 edition of the Jackson Sun, the term runaway is again used for what happened to Casey, not abduction. Quote, 
Lieutenant Jerry Hartsfield of the Milan PD says that there have been runaways in Milan before, but Casey is the first one who hasn't been located quickly. It really bothers me that all the people at the church said she seemed just fine the night of the party. I think she ran. Maybe she left with somebody she knew, somebody she felt comfortable with, and then couldn't get back. Unquote. Just from looking at available news reports, it appears that once the abduction word was being floated around, that's when real movement started to happen. But it appears that the runaway theory was still there as well. It was four days in before terms like foul play and abduction were being used in the media. It is also important to note that the local media was not as quick to report on this case. The first news report that I can find is August 19, 1996, two days after she was reported missing. It could be that they weren't contacted by law enforcement, but there is another possibility. President Clinton was in West Tennessee at this time, campaigning for his second term in office. One thing that hasn't changed in two decades is how politics can make us lose sight of everyday life. When looking at the timeline, it's unfair to say that law enforcement were completely incompetent, especially after those first few days. But when dealing with an abduction and possible murder, those first few days are the most crucial. And if initially classifying this as a runaway is what has thrown this case off from the beginning, you would think that law enforcement would have spent a lot of their time going through Casey's belongings for some sort of indication that she was planning on running away. Remember the interview I did with Dawn who helped bring Valerie the search and rescue dog to town? She also had this to say. Like I said, two weeks later, it it hit me. What about her walker? At school, and Cindy and I went, and they had not even, I mean, they, you know how little girls write, Casey loves so-and-so, you know, that kind of stuff. In my opinion, going through a 14-year-old school locker is the 1996 equivalent of searching email or website history. In 1996, if you want to know what a teenage girl is thinking, check the notes she writes and receives from classmates. To be fair, I know that police do have possession of Casey's diary. For me personally, my biggest complaint is how police have decided not to cooperate in any way with this podcast. The message I received from the mayor's office that they didn't want any media involvement was heard loud and clear, and I get it, to some extent. But this is the 21st century. The role that podcasts have recently played in bringing justice is undeniable. Whether it's the wrongly accused in Adnan Syed to a cold missing persons case in Tara Grinstead, Law enforcement in this country and other countries are using the podcast as an investigative tool. One of my favorite podcasts is from the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation and David Ridgen. It's called Someone Knows Something. Here's a clip from Season 2. Law enforcement agrees to sit down with David, and even though they remain relatively tight-lipped, David still comes away with more info than he had when he walked in. This is a CBC Original Podcast. I ask the current investigator on the case, Peter Tom, again, point blank, about blood, and he remains cagey but eventually gives me a partial answer. Can we confirm or deny that? I mean, we know that there's various things found broken and all this kind of stuff, but can we confirm or deny that blood was found? Mm. Um, I'm just thinking court-wise, I don't want to um, confirming or denying anything that may be relevant to a defense or a prosecution, right? Any blood that was substantive on the scene? I'd say there was nothing substantial. Okay. In the way of blood. In the way of blood. This is how I thought it was going to be with searching for ghosts. 
And to be frank, it's the way it should be. So I wanted this episode to be an objective look at how police have handled this case. There is no need in just pointing fingers and assigning blame. That isn't the purpose of this. But law enforcement does need to be held under the microscope to see if there is anything that they missed that could help in solving this case. I'm sure you remember reference of a possible telephone call made from Casey that night at church. I couldn't get that out of my head once I heard that. But what are you going to do? You need a court order to get those records. I've heard that police never looked into this, but that the podcast had caused them to investigate this now. I wish that I could say that hearing that made me rest easier, but it didn't. But while we were investigating this case and talking to various people, the phone call was brought up almost in passing from a friend of Casey's at the time. She agreed to talk to me on the record, but requested her name not be used. I wasn't standing right beside her, but she had said she was going to try to call and find her mom. I don't know where she called, and I don't know if she even spoke to anyone, but I do know that she said she could not get in touch with her mom. Okay, and that was at the church? That was at the church, and it was not a faith phone. There's not a faith phone at that church. To the best of my knowledge, there's never been a payphone. It was just a regular, like, landline telephone. The only reason that I can remember a phone call that night is because the phone call, like, had to do with me. She was trying to find, she was trying to get permission to spend the night with me. Okay. So that's the only reason that that, if that hadn't been the case, I probably couldn't sit here and tell you one way or the other. Yeah. And like I said, I, I... I mean, I can't even, like, guarantee you with beyond a shadow of a doubt that she made a phone call. Yeah. I, I do feel comfortable. I, I feel like she had attempted to call somebody. Yeah. You yeah. know? You've never been contacted by police ever about this, right? No. Okay. No. Okay. No, do I feel like she made, a, made plans for someone to come pick her up? No, because I, I was, like, two at 14 years old. And we're all naive at 14. Yeah. Yeah. But um, I would like to think that she honestly tried to call her mom to get permission to spend the night. And then we had plans the the next day. Um, I had other kids staying at my house that night. You know, it just kind of made sense. And then when we parted ways that night, you know, we were planning to meet up the next day and then her stay with me at night and just go ahead and plan on it, you know, before anything got started. So I, w- I would like to think that, no, she wouldn't have made plans for something else that night or even to run away. I, I don't feel that that's what happened, but, yeah. you know, you know I mean, you know. This is why it's so important to go through this thing slowly and try to look at everything, especially from the night in question. This might have not been a pickup call from Casey. This could have simply been a call to get permission to stay the night with a friend. But if this were never investigated, how do we know? Since Cindy didn't have a working phone at the house, who did Casey call? How many calls did she make? If law enforcement never looked into this, what else was missed? You've been listening to the Left of Nashville Podcast Network. Mm -hmm.